0: This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson, bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. St. Louis IX, an example for our times. Our society is in a state of disintegration. It is trying to separate itself from its own heritage and history. A new narrative... Loosely grounded, in fact, and dismissive of all great achievements, is trying to replace all that which was good and great in Christian Western civilization. One of its targets is the French King Louis the Ninth, 1214-1270, to 1270, a king so great that he was made a saint. His statue in the city of St. Louis has been under attack in recent weeks. Most of those attacking the statue have only a vague notion of the reasons for their rage, St. Louis is a European male depicted in a military posture. That is enough to evoke the ire of the ill-informed mob.
1: The goal of this episode of the Return to Order Moment is to acquaint people with the great man behind the statue. We begin with an article by one of the great king's descendants, Prince Bertrand of Orion-Raganza. He describes St. Louis' legacy in his article, I am a direct descendant of King St. Louis IX. Keep his statue. This article was published on www.tfp.org on July 14, 2020.
0: Prince Bertrand of Orleans Braganza is a descendant of St. Louis, 22 generations in the direct paternal line, and a member of the Brazilian imperial family. In 1888, his grandmother, Princess Isabel, then regent, signed Brazil's Golden Law, freeing the country's slaves. He is an outspoken writer, speaker, defender of the Catholic faith, and a member of the Plinio Correa de Oliveira Institute in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where he resides. Some time ago, I visited the magnificent equestrian statue of St. Louis IX that towers over Forest Park in St. Louis, Missouri. In the right hand of the Holy King is an inverted sword, held out as a cross, signifying his desire to defend the Catholic faith against all adversaries. As a descendant of St. Louis, in the direct paternal line, I was touched by the devotion of the locals to him and the kindness they extended to me. I heard that some want to topple this statue. They want to tear it down as part of a worldwide movement to destroy everything that represents Western civilization. This hate campaign now extends to Catholic saints and includes good King St. Louis IX. I immediately thought, Why do they hate King St. Louis when he only did what was good? What did he do to deserve such hostility when he treated others with such Christian charity? Indeed, people of any station in life could come up to him at the legendary oak tree in Vincennes, present their complaints to him, and receive justice. For generations, his memory held my family members to the highest of standards. We felt called to honor his memory with good actions. He has constantly called on us to follow in his steps and display similar love of justice and charity. We need representative figures like King St. Louis to guide society. I say this not because he is my ancestor. By his canonization, we are assured that his heroic virtues are worthy of emulation. King St. Louis is a shining figure of a statesman and leader that invites the admiration of all. Would that the world today had such political leaders like him. The reason I believe his statue must remain standing is that he represented so well the virtues that we need most today. Love of honor, truth, justice, and the faith. His statue is needed because the riotous monument topplers represent a disorder and destruction that will take society to ruin. They seek to destroy history and erase the memory of saintly men, like St. Louis, precisely when such role models are most needed. We need the good and strong St. Louis in these days of weak leadership and cowardly surrender. St. Louis was renowned for his passion for justice. He was a statesman who pursued peace with the nations surrounding France by negotiating generous and equitable solutions to complex disputes. He also knew how to be firm in upholding the Catholic faith. That is why he fought to free the Holy Land from the hands of its Muslim occupiers and stop their brutal and unjust persecution of Christians such was saint louis's reputation that when imprisoned by the muslims during the crusade an emir asked to be dubbed a knight by him saint louis answered become christian and i'll make you a knight other muslims would bring their cases before him to be judged During his reign, he sent officials throughout the realm to announce in every city that anyone who had complaints against present or past royal officers and judges for corruption or injustice to come forward so that justice could be rendered and the tainted public officials removed from office. He was also famous for his Christian charity, especially toward the poor. He truly believed that the peace and blessings of the realm came through the proper care of the poor. He was a true father to his people and was beloved by them. He had dinner with beggars, washed their feet, and ministered to their needs. He set up hospitals, schools, and institutions to take care of the sick, poor, and blind. The most important quality of my ancestor was his sanctity. St. Louis the Ninth was a holy king who loved God and the Blessed Mother. He avoided all sin and practiced heroic virtue. He spent long hours in prayer, fasted, and prayed much. The king said that he prayed long into the night so that France might sleep tranquilly. Everywhere he encouraged the practice of the faith and endowed religious institutions and churches. As a descendant of St. Louis, I was profoundly moved to hear that Catholics frequently gather at his monument in Forest Park, St. Louis, to pray the rosary and defend the symbolic and historical landmark. By remembering him with a statue, we do more than honor his memory. We recognize humbly that through God's mercy, good and holy leaders can exist again. St. Louis challenges us to act with wisdom and courage. Let us keep the statue, lest we lose the highest of standards, those of Christian civilization, and tumble into chaos and anarchy.
1: One does not need to be a member of St. Louis' family to mount a defense of his life and character. Any number of scholars have extolled his virtues as well. Mr. John Horvat II reviews the work of one such scholar in his article, A Brilliant Defense of Christendom. This article was originally published in Crisis on September 11, 2017. The following day, it was published on www.tfp.org.
0: Many believe that Christendom was a rigid and brutal order. In medieval times, we are told that tyranny ruled and the church and the nascent state were constant rivals in the pursuit of dominance. So many modern historians have cynically reduced this period when Christianity prevailed to a time of cultural darkness and violent political struggles. Such people fail to understand the Christian order since they equate it with tyranny. They judge Christendom from the premises of our present disorders, in which people seek only their self-interest. That is why it is refreshing to find a modern scholar who can refute this utterly distorted narrative of the Christian order. Historian Dr. Andrew Willard-Jones manages to break through the misconceptions and presents a fascinating look at the medieval order in his new book titled, Before Church and State, A Study of Social Order in the Sacramental Kingdom of St. Louis IX. Professor Jones does not run away from the unjust charges against the Christian order. Indeed, he affirms that people in the Middle Ages had a passion for order. He would not dispute the modern history books that feature charts of this seemingly rigid hierarchical order in which we find kings and nobles, a pope and bishops, merchants and peasants, all outlined very neatly on a page. However, in his new book, Professor Jones takes those neat, well-structured charts and scribbles all over them. He draws lines here and there, making all sorts of substitutions, connections, and interconnections between people and nobles, bishops and kings, paupers and clerics. We are introduced to an amazing world of rights, customs, laws, and grace that melded everyone in a particular kingdom into a people. The modern chart is still there, but it is not a neat outline anymore. It is not a mechanical model of society like some corporate organizational chart. Rather, the Christian order takes on the appearance of something very organic and human. Its structures of church and state, for example, might be likened to a presentation of soul and body. We know the two are distinct in theory, but when mixed together in practice, the chart gets messy. That is the problem with those who criticize Christendom. They look rigidly upon the past with modern mechanistic criteria. They cannot think outside our enlightenment box. Hence, they accuse anyone who thinks otherwise of idealizing the past. Dr. Jones is far from idealizing the medieval past, but he does present a vision of Christendom beyond the oversimplified charts that box in our vision we get a glimpse of the real Christian order. When properly understood, this Christian order is very appealing and refreshing. The author is the director of the St. Paul Center at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. He spent ten years writing his book with the encouragement of colleagues. His studies took him into several disciplines which are presented in the book. His views are not just idle speculation about the past, as he relies upon a wealth of primary sources that give delightful insights into the everyday lives of medieval Frenchmen. Dr. Jones describes the Christian order by following the narrative of the reign of St. Louis IX and his counselor, Guy Fossois. The Frenchman Fossois was successively father, widower, judge, advocate, enqueteur, bishop, cardinal and eventually Pope Clement IV. He straddled both sides of the religious and temporal order, often simultaneously. From this privileged perspective, Dr. Jones constructs a vision of how medieval society worked. Instead of tyranny, we find subsidiarity. There is an order wonderfully adjusted to the needs of society. We witness a harmony and peace that cannot be understood, but is nevertheless so desperately needed by our fragmented postmodern world that has separated what should be united and made everything relative, deconstructed, and uncertain. Our historian's central thesis is simply stated, I argue that 13th century France was not a world of the secular and religious vying for position and power but in a world in which the material and the spiritual were totally dependent on each other and penetrated one another at every level, He claims medieval society offered, quote, a coherent vision of the whole in which mankind moved through grace from the lesser to the greater, from the fallen to the redeemed. It was an integral vision which included all of social reality, and it was removed from our own. Indeed, he invites us to see the secular and religious powers operating in a single legal universe. Both powers work together toward building peace, each in its sphere and often together. He introduces us to social processes based on customs, uses, and liberties that create an order that was, quote, temporal, differentiated, And ultimately peaceful. The result was not strife, but an astonishing social harmony. Such harmony is contrary to the myth that the medieval hierarchical order was lawless and tyrannical. It crashes head on with the notion that most people in those times had no rights and that the law was arbitrary. In fact, nothing could be farther from the truth and yet nothing could be more foreign to our modern understanding of laws and rights. Dr. Jones explains how law in a modern society is based on the premise that society is made up of a universal conflict of self-interest. Law was established to regulate what Thomas Hobbes called the war of every man against every man. Professor Jones claims that medieval society was centered on the idea of the negotium pacis et fides, which is the business of maintaining the peace and the faith. As people interacted inside the framework of the Christian faith, they worked out their own rules through which the society remained in peace. Thus, peace, the tranquility of order, was the great concern of medieval times. Contrary to Hobbes, we might say law was the peace of Christ directed by every man toward every man. When the peace was disturbed, it fell upon the ruler to find the law by looking at what the state of peace had been and to render judgment on how to return it. Hence, rights sprang up like, quote, "...little patches that were sewn into the tapestry of society where an unfortunate tear had developed." The king who defended the peace and served as the tailor, who judged according to divine law and with wisdom. Thus, anyone could bring up a case against another who had broken the peace. Legitimate authority was distributed everywhere— so that cases might be brought to the king, parliament, or a local official. There are abundant cases of peasants against nobles, villagers against bishops, the king against merchants, and even the curious case of a pauper against a cleric. Dr. Jones fills his books with innocent anecdotes taken from the ancient records that show the robust defense of rights at all levels and places. Peace was sought by Parliament everywhere, whether it be in cases of crime or a dispute over who had, quote, a right to the trees that fell in a certain wood, or who had the right to pasture their pigs in a certain field in June, and who in August, unquote. Everyone could defend their rights inside the peace. There were even cases in which the king himself would rule against his interests to protect the peace. When people zealously defend their rights inside this peace, it creates a strong nation, not a weak one. A strong sense of justice is the sign of a great people. Indeed, what are we to think of this justice that was so easy to access and which was administered so personally? Dr. Jones tells the story of villagers that every spring went to a nearby wood to cut down the dead trees to use for firewood. A local knight stopped them one year and took their carts. The peasants protested, claiming that they had always taken wood from the forest. The knight replied that they had always taken one cart, but not the two that they were now taking. Parliament heard the case and found that they had occasionally taken two carts over the course of 40 years. The knight was ordered to make amends, since he had broken the peace by his actions. The villagers' rights were thus made more secure. Yet in another case, a noble family claimed the right to land they had held for 25 years the local inhabitants contested the right, saying it was held by force and that they had long pastured their animals on this land. Parliament ruled in favor of the people. Another case found that a list of complaints by villagers broke the peace and the local noble indeed was justified in his defense of the rights that he and his family had long held. An even more touching example of the medieval passion for justice to maintain the peace is St. Louis himself, who sent royal inquirers throughout the realm to write any wrongs that he or his ancestors might have done. They were not only to listen to standing complaints, but to actively search out instances of abuse and make restitution. Such gestures were common in the Middle Ages and not limited to sainted kings. Alas! we cannot say the same about the impersonal governments of our days. Such a state of affairs cannot be explained except by a spirit of charity and love of God that impelled people to look beyond the zealous defense of their self-interest to the defense of the general peace. Dr. Jones explains how the medieval man overcame this difficulty by, quote, forming networks of cooperation, of loyalty, of debt, Of favor and of friendship. It is almost beyond the capacity of the modern mind to conceive of these networks, which religious and laymen at all levels of society developed under the concept of giving concilium et auxilium, counsel and aid to others. Networks of concilium et auxilium brought together individual rights and obligations, powers and uses. into a single organism by forging personal, reciprocal relationships similar to that of kin and true friends. To grant someone concilium et auxilium meant to freely bind oneself to help another, to make another's interest one's own. These networks, when activated, were able to mobilize immense material and social resources. They operated inside the peace and respected the rights and duties that sustained it. There are so many other concepts in the book that likewise challenge us to reflect on Christendom with different criteria. Dr. Jones broaches many disciplines, and thus does not have time to elaborate his concepts to their fullest. His theological considerations can thus be sketchy and underdeveloped. At times, one wonders if his notions of sovereignty— Church and state are a bit too unstructured. However, his book is a brilliant defense of Christendom and an indictment of our postmodernity. It awakens in us longings for that passion and justice that is sorely absent in our vast governmental structures. In the loneliness of our individualism, we are attracted by those networks of kinship, friendship, cooperation, counsel, and aid that give meaning and purpose to life. Above all, we are exposed to a sacral world outside of our sterile, secular society. Immersed in the book, we can get away for a time from the polarization of our fragmented culture. We are invited to contemplate the role of grace and redemption in molding our lives. After reading Before Church and State, We have a measure of hope. Indeed, we feel whole again.
1: King St. Louis IX's younger sister also lived a life of great piety.
0: The founder of the TFP, Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira, tells her story in How Blessed Isabel of France Shows That Suffering Is More Important Than Enjoying Life.
1: This article was published on www.tfp.org on July thirtieth, two 2020. It is taken from an informal lecture Professor Plinio gave on February 21, 1967. It has been translated and adapted for publication without his revision.
0: Very few know that St. Louis IX of France had a sister who was beatified by the Church. Her feast day is celebrated on February 21st. Her biographical information is taken from René-Francois Rohrbacher's Universal History of the Catholic Church. Quote, The daughter of Louis VIII and Blanche of Castile, Isabella of France was born in 1225. She lost her father at the age of two, but her mother gave her a complete education, aided by Madame de Brismont, a cultured and virtuous woman, from early childhood. Isabel showed an aversion to everything that could alienate her from God and later decided to devote herself to his service. Thus, Isabel flatly refused when Louis IX and Blanche of Castile insisted that she marry Conrad, son of Frederick II, as this union would be advantageous for France. A letter from Innocent IV, then on the pontifical throne, ended any doubts about the problem. He congratulated the young woman on her resolution and advised her to persevere. Upon making this resolution, Isabel, while still in the royal palace, started to lead a life similar in everything to that of a cloister, dedicating herself mainly to aiding the poor and sick. God sent his servant many trials, long and serious illnesses, the death of the queen mother which greatly shook her, and her brother's failure in the Holy Land. When Louis IX was released and returned, Isabel left the royal castle and founded in Longchamp a house for young women of the Order of St. Francis. It afterward became the convent of the humility of the Blessed Virgin. She was always sick, yet favored by graces and ecstasies. She came to know, for example, the exact day and time when she would leave the world. Blessed Isabel of France died in 1270. Dressed in the habit of St. Clair, she was buried in the convent that she had founded according to her wish. Pope Leo X beatified her on January 3, 1521. Unquote. The life of Blessed Isabel contradicts the quote black legend against the Christian civilization in which largely Protestant historians constantly spread falsehoods about royal courts. They presented every royal court as a place of pleasure, sensuality, and pride, where virtue did not thrive. This biography presents two saints, one on the throne and another, his sister, on the steps of the throne. They both gave the greatest glory to God. Not far from them stands Blanche of Castile, the mother of two who, although not a saint, was nevertheless a lady outstanding for her austerity and the various moral gifts that distinguished her. Her life reveals the curious ways in which providence treats the saints. Her life is different from the famous happy ending, where everything goes smoothly from beginning to end. Many people dedicated to enjoying this life imagine that consecrated people never experience difficulty and live tranquilly in the cloister. Blessed Isabel is one of a princess who abandons everything to devote herself to doing good to the poor and to prayer. One also sees, more or less clearly, that she even carries part of the burden of the misfortunes of St. Louis. She suffers, groans, prays that the most Christian kingdom of France is successful in its crusades, enterprises, and other projects. However, she suffers acutely from the failure of the king's crusade and imprisonment. She immediately starts to lead the life of a nun in the royal palace. When the king returns, she leaves the royal palace, founds a convent, and completes her religious formation. However, throughout her life she is tormented by great and serious illnesses, which naturally hinder her works of charity and life of prayer. She often had difficulty praying because of the great illnesses that she endured all her life until death. However, her long life of merits ended up sanctifying her. God gave her a great obstacle that was really an apparent obstacle, since it served as a means of sanctification. By her illness, she sanctified herself more quickly and better than if she had not been ill. Thus, It is wrong to think that all works of apostolate must go smoothly and always yield good results. To expect no difficulties in the good works that one does is a mistake. Such expectations come from a false and naturalistic spirit. People have a mania for a Hollywood happy ending for everything. Blessed Isabel shows what the life of a true saint is. Providence seemingly sowed it with difficulties, which actually helped sanctify her. Keep this in mind when spiritual works and initiatives do not work according to expectations, or even end in failure. This is normal. Indeed, when work does not suffer such setbacks, it is proof that it is not God's work. Our daily bread consists in accepting the ordinary, normal, and correct way of operating of divine providence. The name of her convent is very beautiful. It is a convent of the Order of Franciscans, beautifully named the Convent of the Humility of the Blessed Virgin. A community of women religious called the Humility of the Blessed Virgin gives the impression that Our Lady's humility hovers over all the corridors, cloisters, cells, and especially the chapel. Thus... Our Lady's mantle of humility covers everything and shrouds the sisters in the annihilation of all their vanities and pride. It also covers them with a protective cloak. The whole scene is something that is already a foretaste of heaven. It is beautiful to see how God always glorifies His saints. Our Lord Jesus Christ has an impressive prayer in which He asks His Heavenly Father to glorify Him because He had already given glory to His Heavenly Father. All saints are glorified, even if at the last minute of their existence. Many people would not like to know the exact day or year of their death, like Blessed Isabel. They would be afraid to know, despite the advantages of making a proper preparation. One man might say how good it would be to know the date. He might be told, for example, that he would live to be 93. He could live a peaceful life for 90 years with no concerns. He might then spend his last three years being concerned. Another man might be afraid, since he might be told that he has only 15 days before death. Then he would experience the anxiety of facing death in the short term. Unfortunately, most people are afraid to know when they are going to die. Blessed Isabel was not afraid, because she saw death as a liberation. God rewarded her with the knowledge of the time of her death. She prepared to go to heaven as a spouse prepares to meet her husband. Notice the beauty of this kind of death. The scriptures say that the death of the righteous is precious to God. She had the peaceful death of a person who knows when she is going to die and thus knows when God is going to arrive. Like all the dying, the moment she breathed her last, she was judged by God and entered eternity. On that very day, the faithful soul can see God face to face, free from so much misery, misfortune, sadness, and the ominous risk of eternal damnation. Thus was the case of Blessed Isabelle of France.
1: This concludes St. Louis the Ninth, an example for our times. Thank you so much for listening. To read these or find related articles, please visit our websites at www.tfp.org and www.returntoorder.org. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help return to order be more effective. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2020 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.